Hi, welcome to Fighting to Win, the series where we share real stories from the front lines of the environmental justice movement. We're the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, and we support activists around the country who are fighting against toxic chemical pollution in their communities. Most of them are everyday people who discovered toxics threatening their neighborhoods and decided to create the change that they need. Here at CHEJ, we connect communities to each other. So when COVID-19 hit, we launched a webinar series to bring organizers, activists, and community leaders together despite the distance. These conversations have been rich and inspiring, and now we want to share them with you as a reminder that we are together in this fight. And not just that, but we are fighting to win. Subscribe to Fighting to Win now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you for being with us. Six years ago, and a bunch of us who were mothers and grandmothers living in Arlington, um, faced with an onslaught of urban drilling, uh, felt that uh, our children's interests were not being represented, and we decided that we wanted to be a voice for how the voice of the children who were being uh, seriously affected by the fracking and drilling that was taking place here. For those of you who don't know Arlington, um, it's a large city, about 400,000 people on top of the Barnett Shale. And so the Barnett Shale is a big reservoir of natural gas. And about 15 years ago, um, industry and our government here decided that it was a good idea to start putting gas wells uh, close to homes and schools and to start using fracking to get the natural gas out. And it snowballed pretty quickly. And now we have, in our 100 square miles, we have close to 400 gas wells and the drilling is still expanding. So Livable Arlington started in my kitchen right where I'm sitting as a group of mothers and grandmothers who thought, you know, we, we're going to go talk to people and uh, bring some sense to the situation. Yeah, well, congratulations and well done. Like, so uh, there could be people here who aren't really familiar with the effects of fracking a, and drilling a gas well, particularly close to a school or a hospital. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, so just what that does? So, um, you know, we live in a built-up area, and the way fracking is done, they find a piece of land where they put a drill site, and from there they drill multiple wells. First they go down vertically, and then they're able to go horizontally and drill many wells under homes, under schools, very close to homes, schools, and other structures to get the gas out. The process itself is quite risky and it's also very toxic and resource intensive. So they use a slurry of chemicals. A lot of them uh, they don't have to disclose. Most of them are very toxic and have multiple health effects associated with them. So they mix this slurry of chemicals with about 4 million gallons of water and sand and uh, you know, push it underground at very high pressure to break the shale, which is the rock under which 
inside which the gas is trapped. Eventually, this all comes back out along with whatever else is underneath, which is often radioactive materials, uh, um, you know, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, cellular organisms that could be toxic and all these chemicals, they come out. And in that process, you know, there's the risk of accidents, there's the risk of contamination and pollution, but there's also uh, serious emissions. Um, there are toxic emissions, hazardous pollutants, uh, volatile organics like benzene and methane that is leaking. And all of that is very toxic to people uh, when they breathe it. And our city allows gas wells to be sited 300 feet from homes and schools. So when you breathe this stuff, it's not diluted. It's not occasional. It's a continuous onslaught, especially in the stages where they're drilling and fracking. So the health effects are pretty serious. The risks are pretty serious. Mm. And we experience them. And we've had some spectacular accidents as well. Wow. Um, can you, so what was the moment, Ranjana, when you, you, you said livable Arlington started in your kitchen or your living room? So what, what happened? Take us through that day. So um, it was a long process. It, um, when drilling first came here, we refused to lease to Chesapeake Energy, which was the biggest driller here, and they wanted to drill under our neighborhood. Um, so most of our neighbors agreed, agreed to the drilling. They took royalty payments and bonuses, and we refused. And we refused, this was more than 12 years ago, maybe about 15 years ago, because uh, I felt it was risky, it was toxic, um, and uh, the state of Texas allowed this company to still drill under our house without mm. our consent, without payment. We didn't want the payment. We just wanted to be left alone. And, you know, a lot of people organized at the time to, kind of, to ask for safety and distance, but nobody really wanted it to not happen. So as the years went by after that, we noticed that the number of wells was increasing. And so around our neighborhood, every five minutes when you drive around, you would see a drill site and new wells being drilled. And uh, nobody knew what the permitting process was. And I honestly, you know, was very busy trying to stop the drilling in my neighborhood and under our own home had no idea that this would become this big regional phenomenon with mm. thousands of well be wells being drilled uh, in the area, 400 of them in Arlington now. Mm. Um, so there was a small amount of opposition that had started and there were people very valiantly trying to oppose permitting of wells. Um, and I, would, I had started watching what happened at city council meetings. And I noticed that the same people would show up time and time again and would be, you know, despite their best efforts, they would be ignored by our city government. Mm. So I felt that if the, organ the opposition was more organized, if we had an organization, we had structure, we had supporters, the power of our power would be, you know, our voice would be amplified. Let me put yeah. it that way. 
you know, I hadn't really thought through most of it, uh, but I thought that individuals, however heroic they were, would not carry the same weight as an organization. So I knew nothing about how to start organizing or how to start an organization, but I just took a stab at it and learned a lot doing it. Um, and so here we are. Uh, amazing. And so you moved to Texas a few years ago or tell us about how you, how you got here. So I, um, yeah, we moved here more than 25 years ago. So I remember this place before drilling mm. and I remember how the drilling took place. And one of the things that motivated me is when the drilling started, I had a young child. At that point, I was a stay-at-home mother. I had a five-year-old. And when, when these landmen arrived with all these leasing offers and everybody was talking about the money, this was 2005, I, I was concerned about how it would affect children. And there was very little written up about fracking and its health effects. It was being sold, as, sold to the community as a very safe way to get energy independence as a, and to get mailbox money. You know, you'd get a check in the mail every, every month. And both those things were wrong. So I started doing some digging and I discovered one reference to benzene emissions and mm -hmm. I guess benzene emissions are very common with oil and gas development and I immediately knew that this couldn't be safe and you know I had environmental leanings um, but I didn't do any kind of public advocacy and I remember I had signed a petition about keeping the arctic close you know safe from drilling because that would be bad for the caribou herd Mm -hmm. So I thought, you, and, and one of the things I remember, it was a national group. Uh, the petition said, you know, this would affect fertility. It would affect how, how the baby caribou, you know, did. So I thought, well, couldn't, it can't possibly good, be good for human babies. And so I thought, no, I'm not going to sign on to this. And that was quite an education because the state dragged us through this really uh, rigged process to give our mineral rights to Chesapeake. And so that was an education. After that, it was very difficult to be just, you know, sort of a private, uh, a person opposing this in private because I, I could see how it corrupted not just our air and water, but also our politics and our government. Mm -hmm. And that was quite the education for me. Wow, so what do you think it is? Cause it's a, a sort of a common refrain that once people have children they start looking at this very differently right like it's no longer about the hypothetical caribou or the panda or the this you know it becomes a lot more personal so what do you think about motherhood made you look at things differently um, so as parents as mothers and I was a stay-at-home mother so you know I guess I was I had the opportunity to think more deeply about this you try to keep your children safe and you try to prepare them so they can face the world and you know build good lives in the world and um, we were looking at environmental catastrophe. I mean, we've known about the climate crisis for decades. Um, 
this was 2005. Uh, the Bush administration had taken us out of the Kyoto Accords, had doubled mm. down on fossil fuels. And so I think as parents, you have to think about the future. And I realized that despite the best efforts that families put into raising their children, their children, their children would still face a very uh, uncertain, uh, I don't even want to say uncertain, we know now with certainty what it's going to be, a very difficult future. And I was, uh, so I wanted to do my bit, you know, I, fracking was happening all around us. Um, we were investing heavily in fossil fuels. In doing that, we were putting a huge health burden on children as they were growing up. And I also understood that uh, these children would face sort of the climate effects of, of all this drilling and consumption of fossil fuels. So that definitely was my motivator. I did this as a parent, you know, I've had a good run. Um, I've lived in a fairly stable environment. Um, as somebody recently said, and the word stayed with me, uh, there, there are more years behind me than in front of me. So I know I've had a good run, but I don't think our children will. And mm -hmm. that, that deeply, deeply troubles me. The selfishness, the short-sightedness, the, the, you know, sort of the intergenerational theft that's ongoing worldwide, especially in the U.S. and places like Canada and Australia. Um, where we are actively destroying our children's future. That, that definitely motivates me. In fact, that is the big motivator. Yeah. And what's your background in uh, professionally? Because you said you, you were not, uh, you didn't go to school, you didn't study uh, science or um, environmental issues. I'm an economist. Mm. And, um, I was a college instructor when my son was born. And um, when he was a toddler, I chose to stay home. And I thought it was a short-term thing that I would go back into the world I loved so much, the world of young people and teaching. Um, and somehow it never happened. Um, so yeah, that's my background. I, I, I am an economist. Yeah. So I understand costs and benefits, I think, better than most people. Um, so in your, in your professional opinion, those royalty payments, what do they do? By the way, the, you should explain the royalty payments for people who are not from Texas. Um, so the way drilling worked here, when, uh, when fracking started, most of us owned our mineral rights the min rights to the minerals that are under our homes. So when drillers came, what they would do is they would pull together a, a few hundred homes and create a pooled unit and sign everybody up and everybody would be entitled to a certain percentage of what was um, extracted, typically somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% and there would be a signing bonus. And at one point, the signing bonuses were pretty large. And um, so for instance, they were anything from $5,000 to $28,000 an acre. 
So if you lived in a house like ours, you know, you, you, uh, you could easily get eight, $9,000 as a signing bonus. And then we were told that the royalty checks would be a couple of hundred dollars every quarter for the next 50 years. That was greatly exaggerated. Fracking has never really made much money. Most of my neighbors get $10 every quarter, sometimes every year. Mm. Some get more. And, uh, but the bonuses were very attractive to people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people signed on because of that. The costs were never counted or explained or acknowledged. There are health costs. There's a lot of asthma here. That costs about $3,300 a year to manage. Mm -hmm. um, there's property damage. There's loss of property value. There's illnesses. So those costs, we know how to quantify them as economists, but nobody has done that because there's no interest in measuring uh, the cost, there's only, you know, sort of this propaganda about the benefits. And the benefits, of course, they're exaggerated. And nobody's talked about the climate crisis. Fracking is a great contributor to the climate crisis, which is going to wipe out at least 5% of our economy in the next few decades. We're looking at trillions of dollars. Um, so the accounting was incomplete, uh, to say the least, by design. Yeah. No, I mean, those were, you could say that, you could say they're just bald-faced lies. Um, and really what happens is like, you know, I, I, I empathize with anybody who is in financial distress, right? Because it's not like people, you know, that the job market isn't booming, Um in Texas or anywhere else really in the country. Um, but one of the complications that are just so apparent to me is, is the current pandemic, right? That, you know, there's some pretty good research out there that seems to suggest that the virus um, spreads more easily in places that are where the air is more polluted, right? So I, you know, if gosh, if we needed any direct experience with the, you know, with the, this sort of uh, perfect storm, right, of lack of leadership um, and corporate greed, and you know, this situation, the pandemic is illustrating that pretty clearly. Right. Um. Uh, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I think in normal times, it's easier to paper over the impact of something, um, something as toxic as fracking and the environmental devastation. One of the things we noticed in Arlington, um, just, as the, just as we were finding out about COVID-19, a uh, French company, Total, had applied to drill three gas wells um, right next to a preschool in a part of town where most of the uh, residents are either black or Latino. And it's a neighborhood that has fairly high rates of poverty, especially childhood poverty. And uh, one of the things uh, that happened when the city got ready to permit those gas wells, we discovered that that part of town had the highest rate of COVID infections. And 
this was fairly early in the pandemic, but Harvard mm -hmm. Health had already come out with a study which talked about how mortality from COVID was much higher in uh, places that had higher rates of pollution. And there's a new study confirming that out of New York that came out last week. And so all of those became big issues when, um, when it was time for the city to permit, the, permit those wells. And we were able to stop it because I think we were able to point out more clearly that there were environmental justice issues, there was disproportionate impact on a poor minority community. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I hope there is more awareness and it continues when we go back to, you know, we go back to a post-COVID era. I hope we remember some of the things we learned, you know, a lot of things about how inequitable our country is, you know, mm. who, who bears the burden of keeping us going, who has the least amount of protections, who has the highest um, pollution impact um, where they live. So I hope, I hope you remember all that. And I, I think as an organization, we are committed to keeping those issues uh, at the forefront um, yeah. post-COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how old is your son now? He's 20. He's 20. So for activists, activists or folks who are younger, right? Like what, what would you tell them from your experience? What advice would you have for them? You know, I think I learn a lot from young people. Um, so in, in terms of advice, you know, my overwhelming emotion when I see young people at the forefront fighting for environmental progress, uh, fighting the climate progress is shame and guilt. And this thought that my generation has really messed up everything for them. It's not that we didn't know. You know, sometimes you make mistakes because you don't have an answer or you're simply unaware we've known for decades about the climate crisis we've known for decades about uh fossil fuels and yet we've continued you know we've just ignored all that and you know i know that it's not just ignorance there's a lot of propaganda a lot of money that goes into the propaganda that perpetuates uh, the fossil fuel empire so i know that wasn't your question but my overwhelming emotion is really shame mm. and 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 guilt and this this real dismay that our generation has not owned up to and continues to go down this path and we won't face the costs of it young people will in terms of advice keep doing what you're doing hold grown-ups you know hold our feet to the fire speak truth to power and pin the blame where it lies, you know, pin the blame where it lies. And it's because I think a lot of this happens because of that veil of ignorance. You know, our city council continuously permitted gas wells next to our homes, next to our children's schools. And they always said, gee, is there any research? I don't know about it. Do I have the power to find out? Can I fund a study? Um, no, if it was if it was really this toxic, would the government allow this? No, really, I just don't know. I 
I, I just don't know that what you're telling me is right. So they kind of constantly hid behind this veil of ignorance. A lot of our organizing work was about stripping that veil of ignorance. And so I think that would be my advice is to just constantly speak that truth. Yeah. It's harder for people to lie. I'm mm -hmm. not sure that that's good advice because as I said, um, I, I, I don't feel good about giving advice to young people. Um, well, you know, we, um, we have a few other folks on the line and I know there's a, a question from Lois in the chat. I just wanted to give people a opportunity to, you know, unmute yourselves and uh, contribute to the conversation, either comment or question for Ranjna. I see Lois's question. Mm -hmm. So the question is, you've had many wins. Can you say how, what elements were key to those wins, money, having smart people like scientists, protests, et cetera, what was useful? So where we live in Arlington, it's a very conservative Republican Tea Party town. They control the levers of power. They control um, public life, so to speak. Um, so how did we win here? Um, we did not, so our first big win, it was in 2017 when we stopped an injection well, which the state had permitted right next to our lake. This lake, Lake Arlington, provides drinking water to half a million people in this county. So it's a pretty important strategic resource and uh, putting an injection well right on its shore would have affected everybody. So the way we fought it, and this was really our first big win, we never mentioned drilling. We talked about water, the value of water to everybody, which is universal. We talked about what our children were drinking. That's also a universal value, right? You can love fossil fuels, you can buy all the propaganda, but you still don't want to poison your children. So we just talked about water. We talked about how people would be affected. So we kept it very local, very immediate. And even when we allied with national groups, uh, we allied, we took some help from uh, Halt the Harm we really were the voice because we wanted it to be a local fight because people understood that. Otherwise they would have said, Oh, well, you know, there's some outside group that hates Texas or there's some outside group that hates oil. And this is just stuff that they are, uh, you know, fomenting. So we kept it local, but the most important thing was we found the common ground. The one thing everybody cared, which was children and what their children were drinking. And so that messaging and that focus and that, and we really had to reach across the aisle to everybody. That's what was the cornerstone of that win. And um, I think we built on that win by sort of continuing to talk about air quality and health and children's health and how asthma is so pervasive amongst our children and should they really be going to school and, you know, from the playground looking at a drilling rig, those kinds of things. So I think keeping the focus on children, not on climate, 
because even five years ago, there was so much climate denial. And there still is climate denial. People think it's out in the future. The West is aflame now, so I don't think that climate denial is as easy anymore. Um, so, so I think, you know, as strategy and as uh, we just focused on children. And it's really hard, you know, even when people don't support you, it's very hard for people to uh, demonize you or argue with you when you say, well, here I am, you know, here's 80 women lined up at a public hearing because we are concerned about our children. So how much they may want to support fossil fuels, they can't demonize you. Thank you for listening to Fighting to Win. To learn more about the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice and the communities we're working with, visit www.chej.org. Subscribe to Fighting to Win wherever you listen to podcasts and stay tuned for new episodes.